0: Good afternoon. Welcome to The Reason We Learn. Paul Rossi is back today, and we are talking about feelings. Feelings, yeah, nothing more than feelings. That's what they're teaching our kids about most of all. So you know how you hear the debate? They're, they're not teaching kids what to think or how to think. They're teaching what to think. Well, we're going to turn that on its ear a little bit and tell you it's not about either of those things. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Reason We Learn. I'm your host, Deb Philman. At The Reason We Learn, we aspire to be part of the solution. The purpose of this show is to take a good, honest, potentially painful look at the way kids are being educated. We know we can do better. and This is where we'll talk about how. Let's learn something.
1: Hey, Paul, Hey, how's it going? Good to see you again. Glad to be you back too. on.
0: Glad to have you here. So everybody who's joining us, thanks for being here. Um, do the thing. Like, share, subscribe if you're not already a subscriber. But we're not going to have a big, long discussion about the housekeeping. We want to get into this topic. I asked Paul to come back today because we had a little exchange um, in Twitter DMs in response to... The teacher, the lovely teacher in New York, right? The one who was caught mm. by Project Veritas talking about how she uh, she was, you know, manipulating the students. She was a social activities director, I believe. And she yeah. said, you know, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm those white boys. And we just got to get a Dexter type to, uh, to get rid of them, to take them out. And you know i'm still wondering if she's been fired yet i don't know if she's been fired yet so anyway we were talking about it back and forth and you said something really powerful you said i'm gonna go back and find it because i i thought it was great um you said teachers because somebody was arguing somebody's saying oh they don't teach kids how to think anymore they just teach kids what to think and you said teachers should teach how to think not what to think is a red herring only the most ham-handed, woke teachers actually teach students what to think. Most do teach students how to think just according to a set of simplistic heuristics masquerading as critical thinking. And then what you said to me was, was the, the icing on the cake, which was that they're they're doing something worse, right? That whole distinction, what and how, is kind of not really point. They're teaching them what to feel. Explain what you mean by that. First of all, like why the whole thing is a red herring, and then what they're doing with the feelings.
1: Sure. Um, in a way, it turns on how you how people think about thinking. Some, you know, in a, in a way, um, it turns on um, people's own experiences in high school and what they consider actually thinking. I mean, I think I tried to get at it with the word heuristic in that um, the. The framework is essentially has been identified by others better than myself. So, you know, James Lindsay's talked about, you know, J. Jordan Peterson's talked about it. You construct, you, you interpret the situation through the lens of oppressor oppressed. But uh, and then you, you, you find who's going to play that role in whatever contextual situation or text or or right. literature piece or whatever. And then you have uh, a sort of uh, a little bit of an index card or rule of thumb for how, you're, how you can talk about mm-hmm. this thing, but it's incredibly simplistic. Um, and it's sort of like a filter, right? So, so it's a way of looking at the world, as they say, it's a lens. Uh, but it is a, there is some thinking involved. It's not so mm-hmm. precisely cookie cutter. And yep. they will reward the kids that are able to apply it in unique ways. I've said this before. So as long as you work within that framework, if you were to, if you were to perhaps identify a group, a power dynamic that no one has explored yet in the classroom, like mm-hmm. you may get an A instead of like an A minus or something.
0: Right. Um, if
1: you can, you know, if you can discover um, something that's problematic that maybe you know no one else in the class notices, right? I mean, it's it's still the same template. But there is some creativity involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but deeper than that and getting to what I, I talked to you about teaching kids how to feel is that the way they, they instantiate this how to think is based on a platform of feeling. So yeah. if, you don't, if you don't have an affective response to whoever in the situation is suffering, uh, and you don't have this sort of glandular attachment to that party in whatever situation right. or text you're dealing with, then um, you know it's very it's it's difficult to make it stick as a right. as a how to think. So so before they even get to this how to think in the earlier grades or in the earlier process around what they teach kids around identity and how to think about others. Social identity and so on. It's it's very very feeling based. It's based on right. on empathy and others have said um, called it a weaponization of empathy. Um, I think it's I think it's um, yes ultimately that, but it starts from a more humble beginning and in a way a more dangerous beginning, uh, in that you are very much steered away from logical categorical thinking Mm -hmm. about um what makes sense and you're you're you're, you know that what makes sense is replaced by what feels right or what what is ethically emotionally appropriate right uh and then and then so this is something that they get uh, i have seen training videos on it and they they're able to use that uh, we did in my school around conversations and, the, and where the rubber meets the road is when you have a group discussion or conversation. So when they say things like we're going to respect other points of view, that's an intersectional meaning. It's a, it's something that says, well, if you say something that you think might offend someone, you should probably not say it. That's, that's the actual application of of those right. words. Right. And um, when I wrote the piece in April night, uh, twenty twenty one about what I went through. And I it was like a last minute thing. We're trying to come up with a title, right? So it's about sure. to be published. You know, Barry Weiss like that. What are we gonna what are we gonna call it? I was well, what do we call it like indoctrination? I, I refuse to stand by all my children are indoctrinated, my students are indoctrinated. Uh, I was never comfortable with indoctrination. I was never right. I never thought that was the right word. I mean, mm-hmm. I got into it a little bit in another tweet. Um, that I talked about I wanted to find a word that captured that emotional component the affective component of indoctrination because I think when people hear indoctrination not everyone but a lot of people hear doctrine so Mm -hmm. it's it's literally like you're standing in front of someone with a book in your hand and the the teacher is saying you must state these principles and the person is repeating it like a robot that's not how it works um they'll put that in you know To get to that to make that stick there is this very important juicier uh limbic thing that's got to happen around um feelings and how kids are trained to feel um and so i i posted a poll uh about looking for a word and maybe a Uh neologism that could that could Uh capture that so i you know i had I, i came up with a couple a couple of my own choices i i wanted to say like how do you how do you impassioned to impassion someone to incentiment someone right to infervor someone and, and you know and i wound up getting a great uh, a great uh feedback and many better responses than than any of those uh, emotivate e motivate was one that, that was e-motivate. emotivate. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, oh love well. that. And then someone else had empathologize, which I which I thought empathologize.
0: Was great oh my it, god, that's fantastic. Yeah,
1: it captures the pathology and the empath and sticks together in this wow. in this way. And and These so I was good. like, that's my favorite, empathologize. But I have to get I had to give a um a, a runner-up to Benjamin Boyce for the for the phrase pity whipped, because I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Oh I was like, God. yeah, you got it. It's pity whipped. The <laughs> kids are pity whipped. Um, so anything that doesn't align with though with that platform of empathy is really cut out of the conversation. You're carved away and you are sort of filtered out and alienated as being, you know, um, a square, you know like to borrow some term from the 50s, you know, like the squares are the you're people normie. that can't be, you're, you're a normie. normie. You're like, yeah, you're, you're not getting it. You're not with it. Um, you don't, you know, you, you don't understand the, you don't have enough EQ or emotional quotient or all the other SEL stuff that goes with, you know, that's aligned with that. Yep. Uh, and that's very alienating. And it's a, it's really a lever. It's a social lever mm-hmm. that drives kids towards a uh, affective way of interpreting the world. Yep. And, and you um, made the, Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say you made the point that they start very young. Mm-hmm. And so lest anyone think that the kindergarten teachers are going in and using big, fancy words, they don't even need to use oppressor or oppressed. but they have other ways of, you know, storytelling. There's a whole new genre now of little kid picture book struggle <laughs> literature where they tell stories of different, you know, intersectionality identities that are being mistreated or marginalized, or whatever. And they don't, again, they don't use those big words, but what they do so skillfully is they cast the good guy. The, the protagonist is not just somebody we're supposed to feel for and care for and you know, root for, but they are virtuous across the board. They represent, they're representative of moral virtue. Their entire identity is represented. So it's it's subtle. But what they want the kids to see is people like this equal virtue. People like this equal the devil. And a case in point is a book I wrote about for Wrong Speak where it was uh, not my idea about how it's a raw deal to be white. This book is in about 27 different kindergartens in the United States. Last count, I'm sure it's more, librarians read it online. So they're not ashamed of it. They picture uh, the devil actually reading the contract of being white and the message is crystal clear. When you know white is lack of virtue, bad, original sin kind of concept, and not white is virtue. And when you do that at a very young age, then all the child has to do, and you do with all the identities, all the child has to do, and it's a easy, like you said, it's a heuristic. They go, person is, you know, the role of oppressor in this scenario is being played by, you know, the white male or whatever. And, you know, the white cisgendered blah, 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 male. And they don't even have to have the vocab. They just have to look. They just have to know a few factoids. What are your pronouns? I don't use pronouns. Check. <laughs> you know what's so? And... Once you give children whose job is survival, right? They, they grab onto heuristics like you drink water in the desert. That's what we do, especially in a somewhat hostile feeling environment like a school. You give them these simple, easy answers to complex problems of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy at a time when that's how their brain is oriented anyway. Like Their, their hierarchy of morality is very much consequence-based. Like Who has bad things happen to them? Who has good things happen to them? Okay, those are the good guys and the bad guys. And then you just reinforce that. You just keep telling stories with the with those kind of protagonists and those kind of antagonists. You just keep setting up scenarios, even in math class. Set up a scenario of how many times someone was stopped by the police. Bad guy, good guy, and so on. So the lens, it's also not like they're going, here you go, children, put on your critical theory lenses. It's It's in everything they do. They're teaching in the lens. They're wearing it like a bodysuit. And once you do that, you're telling children it doesn't matter if you have the right facts as long as you have the right feelings.
1: Right, right. And you know, so much of it is communicated sub subverbally. I mean, I, I gotta say, like if especially with younger children, like if you have if you look, if you merely break eye contact if a child says something. Right. Whereas before, you're giving them all of this this attention reward, they get the message. You know, they get they understand. And, and then there's the there's a the social dynamic of the other kids that pick up on it and then exclude subtly exclude. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really interesting. And it's and it will start with the innocuous um, place of self love. Very often, so the teacher will say, you know, well get you to, they, they want to get the kids to love themselves first because that's sort of like the thing that everyone likes to talk about themselves and what's your favorite ice cream and how, you know, what do you like to do when you come home and you, I like to play with my dog and I like to watch, um, you know, cartoons or whatever. And then they, you know, they build on that and they say, well, you know, like your, um, we need to appreciate each other and so you know these are all innocuous things outside of a politicized context these are things that parents probably think are, are good right but that gets filtered through social identity uh with the idea that what makes you special in your personal story is layered on with things like race ethnicity group identity um you know in immigration status all these different intersectional categories come to be a substitute or a a platform for all of the things that you like so um your your heritage your ethnicity your you know your racial identification they they will push that as early as kindergarten or first grade exactly and then you that becomes how you interpret others and then of course the history comes in and the history as taught tells you that some have privilege and some do not. And so empathy is selectively applied Yep. Um, to be a good person. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I think, and if I take a step back and sort of look at the big picture, which is yeah. why, and it's almost more important to train children to think with their feelings than actually to Get them to believe a particular thing and sure. why does that you know why does that matter well I, I think about i started thinking about the gulf the first gulf war and this is one of the earliest memories i have of what was later uh described as atrocity propaganda so when the when the U.S. was debating whether to go to war, trying to find a justification to go to war to, to to take back Kuwait, which had been invaded by Saddam Hussein. I think it was 1991. There was this story that got a lot of attention and, you know, the a woman test, a young woman testified in Congress about Saddam Hussein's troops pulling babies out of incubators
0: right. and okay. leaving
1: them to die. Mm-hmm. OK, now. Later, it came out that this young woman was the daughter of a Kuwaiti diplomat, and that there was a PR firm involved, and that she was never actually there and didn't actually see the babies pulled out of the incubators. And you know, but but that got so much attention and traction. I think President Bush mentioned like ten times the first President Bush that you know it really galvanized the country in a way, um, and we started to see that again. Domestically, with things like Trayvon Martin and Ferguson and Hands Up, Don't Shoot, and these these atrocities started coming and started being leveraged to gain consensus around certain policies sure. uh, and ideas, sets of ideas. So, if you've trained a society to think with their, you know, feelings, then you have created a populace which is so much softer and easier to manipulate i mean it's just it 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 almost seems trivially easy to do that um so in a way i think that that's actually more dangerous than whatever particular you know left-wing belief system um is going on if you have someone that's if, if if you've abandoned teaching logic and facts and waiting for evidence and you know it it's complicated sometimes Good people do bad things, and sometimes we need to draw lines about what's a you know. Even if the person is sympathetic, we still can't let them get away with this because sure. that destroys society. So all these other considerations are kind of thrown under the bus, mm-hmm. um, and I just think that it's a it's a just neglected aspect of all this. Um, so I'm happy yeah. to to raise it
0: yeah my I, my friend Barbara, who's been on the show a couple of times, said uh, she remember she remembers everything from childhood. She's one of those people who has a vivid memory of being like in her crib. you know they've just those very few and far between, but people who do that amaze me. And she remembers coming to the conclusion as a very young child that she had to have the right facts like she had to have her facts right to have mm-hmm. the right feelings. And she made it her business from that point forward. And she's still a person with a very active mind who still, you know, realizes while she's one of the most empathetic people I've ever known, I mean, a really caring, lovely human being. um, Yet she understood that early on, even as a child, like I've got to have the right facts. And the example that she gave, I believe, was when, you know, she was very close to her mother as a very young toddler. And then her mom took her into the doctor to get one of her regular vaccinations and, you know, most little kids think, you know, mom, mom will, you know, they take you to the doctor and the doctor's there to take care of you. And they're there to hurt you there, whatever. And then she, you know, the doctor came in and gave her a needle and it hurt. And her little toddler self said, you know, mom lied. Mom's a liar. And doctors do hurt you. You know, like, so she had this little primitive conclusion that because she had this painful thing and mom didn't you know, say this is going to hurt and prepare or whatever, um, or say that this is helpful, that this was a lie. And then she didn't trust her mother and she had all these feelings. And then it wasn't until a little bit later when she realized or she learned that, oh, it's a vaccine and it's meant to protect me from this disease. And oh, it's, it, it hurts only for a moment. And then the pain goes away. They're not actually poisoning me, you know, like whatever mm-hmm. the little kid mind would think. Suddenly she realized my anger at my mom was completely misplaced my mistrust of my mom was completely misplaced. I, I hope I've got the story right, Barbara, if you're watching. Mm-hmm. But, um, but that's just one tiny little example from a small child of how not having the facts straight can cause you to have emotions about a situation that are way off base. And then fast forward to the story I told you about last night when my husband was down at Clemson. Listening to a talk about the Constitution and slavery, and a young woman stood up and said and asked, rather, Well, if there's an oppressor oppressor oppressed dynamic in play, do the facts really matter? Like, with a straight face, a college student like, it's telling. Well, it's, it's, I mean, (laughs) it's asking this question
1: based on what she's probably been taught. It's not a bad question to ask. I mean, it may be sort of the beginning of wisdom. In that you're, you know, does it matter? Well, let's talk yeah. about what whether it matters. Like that's if it was asked in a non-rhetorical way, it's actually could be a good question. I don't know, um, uh, but no, that it really is. It, you just remind me of another story. Like when I was in when I was in college as an undergrad, I was um very left wing, was very caught up in postmodernism and and sort of this entire presser press way of looking at the world. And I was very righteous and I would, I lived, um, I grew up in the town where I went to school, even though I was living off campus. And every week I would come back home to have Sunday dinner with my family. And these were usually opportunities for me to berate my loving parents about how unfeeling and how, you know, bourgeois they were. And, you know, they really appreciated it. Let me tell you, anyway, I, I, I drove my I drove my mother crazy. I drove my father crazy. My father is a retired law professor. He was a law professor at the time. And he would just, you know, carve me up and I wouldn't even realize it. That's how, you know, because I was very much caught up in the righteousness um, and slogans right. and so on. But I remember one time I, I took a walk with them through the neighborhood uh, and I... I really was just puzzled by him. I remember just being like, why don't you, like, don't you get it? Don't you understand that, that these people have been oppressed and that they need, you know, don't you care? And, and he kind of stopped and he, and he looked at me, said, no.
0: <laughs> I like your dad.
1: <laughs> and I said, well, why? Like, I was like, my, my, I was like, flummoxed. I was like, how is this, po- how could you be a human being? And he said, I care about you and I care about your mother and I care about your brothers and our cousins and my, you know, and that's about it. And I was like, I was like, and the reason why you're here is because I care about you. And the reason why you, you, you are who you are is because I tried to create the conditions where you could be who you are. And I don't have the bandwidth. I mean, he didn't say bandwidth, but, he, you know, basically that's my way of caring. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I just kind of didn't really make an impression on me. I, you know, I continued to grumble and I said, well, I I actually thought that was selfish and, you know, didn't have the bigger picture in mind or whatever it was. And later I remember thinking about that and thinking, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, of course, like. Uh, why why is it a sin according to today's rule to draw a boundary around your empathy right like why is that and so i'm thinking like how would a parent or a teacher try to try to get a child who has been raised in this sort of uh, limitless empathy kind of mindset that there's no limiting principle to empathy how do you get how do you ask questions that will put back in place healthy boundaries around around empathy um, not just in interpersonal relationships but in but in an understanding of the world
0: right
1: Uh, because you know in this in this framework of of empathy is king and the coin of the realm there is no you know you have if you don't have a global consciousness for all the suffering in the world well then you're just an asshole i mean like that's the way they Pardon my friends.
0: so lazy, Paul. I yeah, mean, yeah, I know.
1: The
0: th- there was a, <laughs> I'm sure you've heard the story about a professor who um, was teaching his students about the abolitionists and slavery and whatever. And he, as one of his first assignments, he said, Okay, if you were alive then, what would you have been? Would you, you know, if you would you have been a slave owner or would you have been able They all, the whole class would have been abolitionists. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) They'd all be abolitionists. They'd all be fighting the Nazis. They'd all be doing, you know, whatever. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll accept that as your answer if you can tell me what you've done recently, like in the last week or so, because abolitionists were pretty committed, right? What have you done in the last week to yourself personally, you know, put yourself at personal risk to go and help another individual human being you know, get out of some kind of really dangerous, bad situation. Like, what have you done that you personally have sacrificed something? And of course, like none of the kids in the class. And his point was fairly obvious that what we're giving kids in a generation that is, I hate to say it, fairly um, lazy when it comes to, you know, <laughs> everything. Yeah. Um, we're giving them a way to outsource their their morality and outsource um, being a good person to a bunch of platitudes and statements that reflect their emotions. So then you get to the place where people believe they're being indoctrinated because they do tend to spit out what sounds like incantations, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to create an inclusive sense of belonging. It sounds like they're just spewing catechisms. And the but that's how they let you know the lesson was well learned that good people feel these feelings they demonstrate that they feel these feelings by uttering the incantations but it's the feelings that are most important there's no doings that really go with that and i know there are people who go out and protest and yell and scream whatever but they're still in the minority of most people and um they're just the ones in my opinion that are you know taking their feelings into action but still it's still motivated purely by emotion that was not the case for the abolitionists the abolitionists i'm sure had very strong feelings against slavery but i i've read some of their writings if you read what they write like they also had philosophical underpinnings to what they were saying and what they were doing um this feels like a very advanced form of cosplay to me
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the protest is merely like an orgy of that thing that you said was lazy. It's just a a more active way to be to just reflect back to yourself in a kind of collective hysteria. What you because they don't you know, I I think maybe they had their moment in political culture in the United States. But but the idea that like a bunch of people yelling in the street is going to create a spectacle that anyone who doesn't already believe that cares about. No. Um Exactly. You know, it, it's it's part of the moral identity of the self, and the way that your moral identity is like the temple that you worship at, and you go into and you go into there, and by making the incantations, you can feel good, um, and you you've reaffirmed your goodness right uh which kind of you kind of have to do that to some degree there's no way to totally be egoless about your moral morality yeah i think everyone has to have some kind of way to reassure themselves but it the but yeah the more divorced from deeds that is the the emptier it is yeah um, it
0: is and i think it actually the more divorced from deeds it is and the more it's grounded solely in emotion Mm-hmm. And, and I think the paramount, the, the emotion that's paramount here is how do I feel about me? Not do how remember? do I feel about yeah. anybody else? It's like, how do I, do, am I a good person? Okay. You know, like that, that's they need to feel that.
1: Do you remember in 2016, there was when Hillary Clinton was campaigning, she went to like various places and, and, and she was kind of ambushed by some black lives matter protesters behind stage before she was going to go on. And I saw a video of this. It was really interesting. And okay. they, they kind of surrounded her and they were, they were like, well, and she was like, well, what policies do you have in mind? And what would you want me to do? You know, you know, she, and they were like, we just want to know that you feel we just want to know that you have that you share like a, like and so she was like, well, look, you know, to to her credit, she was kind of like, well, you know, that's that's nice. But like, I don't really operate in that sphere. Like she kind of yeah, just didn't. And you just saw this just tremendous disconnect between um like a kind of person that's focused on the real world of things, even if it's a sham, you know, for her, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, at least, at least there was the appearance of, you know, maybe I want to pretend cynics. to care about healthcare. Right. I don't yeah, want right. to pretend so, like, to
0: care about race. <laughs> uh,
1: so you have these mutual, um, you know, this really, this, this incommensurability between like this new generation's idea of what things are, you know, and then, right. and exactly. so, uh, yeah. And I just, um i, I, I want to find practical ways to yet yeah, my mother would tell me um my mother would tell me at these sunday dinners she'd be like why don't you why aren't you doing habitat for humanity why aren't you out at the food kitchen why aren't you giving you know why aren't you doing and and i think one of the reasons why doing got undermined at was that it was never enough, or there was problematic, or you, you know, there is always an excuse, a ready right. critical theory excuse to explain why doing the thing which doesn't actually lead to a revolution, the thing which actually helps real people, yeah. is not good enough. Um,
0: you're upholding you know, the system of oppression, si- Paul. So, so
1: unless you, <laughs> unless you dismantle the system, you know, me giving someone a, a hot meal is just like helping that person cope with a flawed system. So, you know, why would I feed that person, really? It doesn't do anything in the long run. They'll also
0: come right out and tell you that unless you're helping other people become as critically conscious as you are, you're helping no one. You're just prolonging their oppression. You know, that, like as you say, you know, giving them food and doing these things. So they're actually nihilists they're 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 you know at best they're deconstructivists i don't know what you would call them, but they um they don't really believe in anything other than the destruction of everything and have this completely bizarre belief that utopia will rise up out of the ashes like it will just come to be even if yeah. there's a layer of totalitarianism in between, that that will just fall away, and all the good communists will just like come rising up. And so, even when you point out to them all the times in history, like, well, that didn't happen, and 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 they'll say, so then you get the it was done wrong, the capitalists got in the way, people started feeding people, you know, like they we didn't kill enough of the bad people. I mean, there are so many excuses, and what I think is frightening to parents is it was one thing when it was adults so whether you have the bolshevik Re- revolution or even in you know nazi germany initially the brown shirts and so forth that's bad enough but now as somebody pointed out in the chat they are using uh military type tactics let's see where the com- the comment was it was somewhere in here where they're using um they're using the similar kind of tactics to get kids to, to, you know, hate their parents. Yeah. Just an average man says what bothers me about most of this is the government is using military psychological warfare tactics to turn kids against their parents, then calls the parents DVES. Oh, domestic violent extremists. Is that right? Something like that or I get it, guessing. I don't know. Um, but We've seen that, right? We've seen that with some of the SEL lessons. We've seen them, you know, question their reality, um, telling the child, like, you know, you can tell me things even if your parents might not like it. So the kid may never have thought about whether mom and dad would like their opinions, but the teacher has already put doubt in their mind. You can always come to me and tell me anything, you know, even things you don't want to tell your parents. And then there's the kid going, what might I not want to tell my parents? Right? Yeah. That's all- that's all you have to do just plant the seed of doubt
1: well when i when i went to high school in in the in the 80s um we, we had we had people come in it was a progressive it was in ithaca new york which is a progressive town it's like austin and and right. uh ash you know asheville north carolina it's like all these different it's little it's really progressive... cold and
0: dark and depressing no, i'm kidding yeah <laughs>
1: um and um you know i remember that a, a guy came in and he was he was trying to basically get the gay kids to be comfortable with their sexuality and come out. And, you know, you know, that, that was sort of the trans of its day. Um, I think it's more legitimate, but you know, that was kind of just like the analog that they're playing on when they do all the trans stuff today. But, you know, I remember thinking really like, well, maybe I'm gay and like, yeah, I like girls, but, but maybe I'm gay, and like I should talk to this guy. And I like went and I talked to him, and like we sat cross legged in the stairwell, and like there was nobody else around. And he was like, you know, well, do you have feelings about you know other you know, people, like other boys, and like it was like it was like kind Ew. of weird, yeah. Like it was it was so gr- I mean, inappropriate. it inappropriate. It was it you know it could be described as grooming, I suppose. I didn't, you know, I don't think he, he wasn't aggressive about it. I think it was it could have been done for. the the best of motives i don't know but like i remember i went through this thing because of it where i questioned and you know i t- i told my brother maybe i'm gay and he was like you're not gay like what the hell yeah. you know and i just kind of but i but i wanted i kind of wanted to be gay because if you were gay then you were special so i okay. i did feel because it was it was sort of i didn't have to encounter any homophobia directly but i felt like you know i'm looking for an identity i i was you know a freshman, sophomore in high school, ninth grade, 10th grade. And, uh, you know, I had, I was kind of confused about yeah. a lot of things. And so I just, it, it's, it's kind of like, there's this offering which can give you clarity and give you definition and yeah. can solve a lot of problems, which are psychological or personal or all the things that kids are dealing with. Uh, and it's very attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I kind of forgot why why I mentioned it. But, well, uh,
0: I mean, it's just you're you're pointing out that you don't have to be as, a you know, I think a lot of people mistakenly assume that these kids who fall prey to this are either, you know, intellectually challenged or they come from bad homes where the parents aren't countering it with anything and they're, you know, just kind of left to flounder and the teachers are coming in and taking over and whatever. And the reality is that, This can affect any person, any person. And sometimes the people you least expect are the strongest pushing back against it. I mean, I had the opposite upbringing in the sense that I grew up in a very chaotic household. My mom left. I couldn't really count on much of anything. My dad wasn't home for dinner. You know, I did get some great values instruction on the side here and there from him on occasion, you know, and I got some great stuff from my grandfather, but on a, as far as daily life went, it was, it was just unstructured and chaotic and I had lots of insecurities and lots of issues. I definitely was a tomboy, hardcore, like they might've tried to trans me if that, but somehow in a weird way that made me more cynical and skeptical about adults and people in authority to me adults couldn't find their way out of a paper bag with a flashlight and a map I thought they were you know I had examples of adults in my own life who are like not getting it done you know so I wasn't the one who would defer to adults because they were adults I'm like you people can't get out of your own way so I'm not sure I should trust you That's, and yeah. and I've heard other stories like that where you know some of these teachers they go, oh there's kids and they're traumatized and it's not like and some of them may need extra help, but some of them may be like, I'm on to you. And I know, right? So I sometimes wonder if, and I've spoken to some teenagers who've told me that this is actually the case, at least in their friend group, if there are kids who are going along with this because it's easy, you know, the, if the adults are going to hand you a recipe for how to get an A, how to be in the in crowd, how to be approved of, how to be thought of as a good person without breaking a sweat. Like, you have, don't have to even think. You don't have to do anything. Just utter the words, the incantation, show up at the protest, paint the sign, wear the mask, do whatever you have to do, and just get through the day. And I do think for some of them, the, you know, the fake it till they make it, it, it sticks. It becomes their identity. They don't know how to back out of it. They're like, uh uh-uh. I was playing along to play along. And now, I, like, all my friends and everybody I know is in this group, and I don't have any other friends. And then I think for others, it's it's a complete gag. And the tragedy, of course, is that no matter which group they're in, you know, if they're in the, you know, like I'm just playing along, or the like, I totally believe this, they're not getting an education. So, you know, yeah. Worst case, way. they're becoming cannon fodder. Best case, they're just empty. They have not na- there's nothing. They're they're walking around on quicksand.
1: You know, I, I think if I'm thinking about the what's best for every like society, member, I remember I think the greatest damage is done to the kids that really are sincere and they want to make sense of these things. And it doesn't make sense, but they feel really deeply that their own subject position in this game is, is, you know, they, they feel a real responsibility and you want a child to feel responsibility. You want them to take it seriously. I, you know, I remember one of my students once said like, I made a joke or something and they were like, oh, yeah, you know, life is just a game. And I, and I just stopped and I was like, no, like it is not a game, you know, like that's like the worst thing you could say is just this kind of breezy, like, oh, you know, like you want you want them to take it seriously. But the problem is when you have a, a culture based on lies and lying, then those kids are the ones that just. Can really go south fast because yes. they can't handle the lies, yep. and they can't manage to lie themselves, right. and they, you know, it, they can really go um, into some dark places. Um, but they're also the choice, the chance of society's redemption. Like those are the ones who are going to grow up into the adults that may save us all.
0: It's possible. You know? I mean, but I think we definitely as adults who recognize this is what's going on, that our kids are being taught what to feel, have to make an extra effort to stop throwing around terms like critical thinking. We need our kids to learn critical thinking. Oh, well, first of all, they've bastardized that term. So critical thinking doesn't even mean what they, what, it, what people think it means. Um, we need to get much more specific. We need to teach our kids to be active thinkers, not passive thinkers to be less formulaic in their thinking, um, be a little bit more empirical. So when a teacher comes along and says, you know, think this way, like walk this way, but think this way, use the lens. Um, they should be asking those Thomas Sowell questions. Like, how do you know? And compared to what? Right? Yeah. Just, it, it, you. we've got to, and we've got to explain somehow, and I, I'm really bad at this, like coming up with like, Accessible, quick, little quippy ways that kids can relate to to make it worth their while to connect this because it's effort. We're asking them to make an effort that the teachers are not asking them to make. The teacher is giving them a menu. You know, feel these things, you win. You're you're a winner. You're you're an ally, or you're at least like doing the work. You're doing whatever you're, you're supposed to be doing. And because if you're oppressed, if you can fit into a press group, you you don't have to do anything. You could be. A completely obnoxious narcissistic little a-hole and it's okay that's totally fine (laughs) society's gonna just like the red sea just part and you get to walk through i actually worry about those kids i worry about what's going to happen to those kids when the inevitable backlash comes and it will oh it will when reality becomes reality they walk out into reality and expect the red sea to part And they go, but I'm a, this as a such and such, you need to bend, you know, and people just look at them and say, no, I'm not going to, because we've now reached a point where I can't continue to exist comfortably and kiss your butt. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, fine. I'll kiss your ass and then I'm still eating and I still have a job. We're going to reach that point probably sooner than later where it's like dog eat dog a little bit. And I, you know, talk about your dad, not having the bandwidth where people are going to be looking at them and going, Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that run along.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, my hope is that before it gets that bad, teachers today can find opportunities to, to legitimize not caring in, in ways in small granular ways and be like, okay, we need to construct something where, you know, in order to even think you can't be hijacked to your emotions, you need to be able to think outside of, you know, these The, the, these compulsions and these demands that you that you feel for things all the time and you know to say look it's it's okay if you don't care about this thing which is which everyone is telling you is this horrible mm-hmm. thing that you need to beat your breast and 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 uh proclaim your virtue i'm like no it's 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 actually something um which is part of the condition of human life right. you find a constructive way to deal with it which is practical pragmatic but Mm -hmm. think about it like you you know to to rush in and and signal to the world that you feel a certain way is not the way to do it like there's Mm -hmm. there's a kid i remember i taught uh who just incredibly bright and you know he developed this this way to you know have he developed a kind of a proto-machine to try to remove carbon from the atmosphere and he won an award in the science fair and stuff and i guarantee you when he was working on it whatever you think about global warming or whatever let's let's imagine you'll find a different context you still
0: don't need extra carbon in the atmosphere
1: yeah right you know it's not good so like he wasn't he wasn't feeling when he was working on that he wasn't like in any more than than a than a baseball hitter doesn't think about his average when he steps up to the plate like he's he's not in the pitch and toss of his emotions he's doing equations and he's you know shaping wood and metal and and electronics and stuff so uh that's okay i just like it's and that's actually the way to actually have an effect that's that's lasting um outside of any political if you
0: need a brain tumor removed paul do you want to go to and i get i this is a false dichotomy but just let's let's play along here um you're given two choices and one choice is, you know, super bedside manner. The neurosurgeon is just known for being sweet and caring and loving, whatever, but you know, bottom third of his class or in terms of the actual surgery, or do you want to go to the top person in that field who barely makes eye contact with the patients, like shows up, does the surgery checks in, you feeling right? Okay, bye. You know, this is what's going to happen moving on. And I would, I would bet most people would say it's my brain, I, I, and it's a tumor, and I want the best person for the job, and their EQ is really secondary for me. Yeah, I don't need validation mechanic. Yeah, yeah,
1: and you it know, must be a
0: lot of pain.
1: And I think it's okay too, even in social settings. For example, like to say, you know, well, what. Rather than just say like, oh, yes, it's it's my fault. I've done all these terrible things and I accept whatever you're – to say like, okay, um, we need to develop a set of rules by which we can all cleave to right. um, and abide by those things in an objective right. universal way. And like if you can't if – you, if you're going to be claiming special pleading things around that, well, then that has consequences that you should be aware of. And these are the consequences X, Y, and Z for society, for yourself, for your health as a human being. And I'm not going to enable that. And that's okay. Exactly. You know, like that's just a basic thing.
0: But it's just, you know, I, I really am glad that you, you pointed this out that teaching kids what to feel tells them in itself that feeling is more important than facts. You don't have to explicitly say that. I think a lot of people get confused like what teacher would tell a student that feelings are more important. than that? <laughs> you don't have to tell so much of what's communicated by adults to children is never spoken. You pointed out that like changing eye contact or just sh- you know shifting away from fo- focusing and walking away from somebody. Mm-hmm. You know anytime that you have an, an individual and they could both be adults by the way who is in a subservient position to another individual in a setting where there is no escape or they have to be there for some benefit to themselves, like it's a job, they're at school, whatever. Anytime that's the case, the person in the subservient position, I've done research on this, is much more attuned to all the other kinds of messaging and signal, like body language, eye, you know, contact, all of those things, than the person in the superior position. They've done, you know, they've done studies. Like, did you notice this? No, I didn't notice because you're in this position. I'm not talking oppressed or oppressed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying there there are people. You're an employee. You're subservient to your boss. All right. Same with a student, and the students have the extra liability of they're physically smaller in most cases. They know they're acutely aware of the fact that they just simply know less in most or they presume that they do, they often presume incorrectly, but they presume that they know less than the adult in the room. The adult's supposed to be smart and that this adult can hurt them. And I don't necessarily mean physically, but they can you know, give them a bad grade. They can send them to the principal's office to spend them. There's many things they could do to hurt the child. So when you're in that situation, you don't have to tell a child, this is what you should feel. You just need to organize your classroom priorities around a certain feeling set, what books you put up, what stories you read, what assignments you give, what stories are in the assignments. And the message comes through loud and clear. This is what matters to the grownups in this room, the grownups in this building, et cetera. And that set of choices is incredibly effective even for a kid who's like the worst student in the class is going to pick up on what matters to that teacher.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. And part of it is, is like you're by being non-reactive. I've noticed this as a teacher, like the more reactive I was, the less power I had because I was dancing at the end of their string.
0: Mm-hmm. If
1: you just don't react. Then you kind of it, it, the feedback loop works the other way. So like by non-reacting, you kind of gain power. Yes, um, which you can use responsibly to like help control the class and help make sure the kids are doing their classwork and stuff. And I, re- you know, it took me years to it took me a year or so to figure it out, and then another couple of years to actually get it more or less right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do not do not react to ninety five percent of the stuff and that that kids are doing don't require it. And then when they realize that you that you're not reacting well, then the fun goes out of rea- of trying to get you to react.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: so then you exactly. then and then they appreciate that you know you're not you're you're actually the adult. So that that actually right. tends to work out.
0: Yeah, and um, what how you act, and then you're also telling kids what is and is not up for discussion. But mm-hmm. uh, what you what you cover in the class, what you talk about, what you put on the walls, whatever the students assume. Those are facts. I would love to do an experiment, Paula. I mean, you know, if I had the opportunity to be a teacher in a classroom, I would love to do an experiment where I could bedeck the room with posters and sayings, whatever things I don't believe that are, that I actually think are wrong, or that that are factually wrong. Yeah. But like, put them all over the room, and then like let it be there for for the week, and then do some some you know, quizzes, like what is this and what is that? And see if the kids write down those as the answers. See how many kids <laughs> say, that's yeah. not true. Wait, where did you get that? And then I could do the big reveal. Like see all the stuff that's been in the room and I put on the walls and all the books in my little classroom library. Yeah, all totally false. Completely oh, that's false that's good. Information. I like that. And then yeah. you like watch their heads explode. But it would be an interesting experiment because you would see pretty quickly how many kids i mean look they've done the thing with everybody in the waiting room you know they, this buzzer goes off and everybody stands up mm-hmm. and the new person who's actually the only real test subject the rest are actors yeah. the new person's looking at them like what's going on and eventually the person yeah. stands up when the are right. well i think to a certain extent this is behavioral conditioning too they're being conditioned to feel which as you pointed mm-hmm. out is one of the easiest things in the world to do and so a lot harder than teaching people to be, you know, inquisitive and skeptical and all those sort of things. And so once you do that in kindergarten, first grade with most kids, you're off to the races. Like you don't, it's, it's not difficult. And it's so unhealthy.
1: Like it, if you create a habit around, about living in your feelings all the time, that's the one of the most unhealthy things. Like it's okay. Yeah. You don't have to, just cause you don't live in your feelings. doesn't mean you're denying your feelings. You can be, you can be aware of your feelings, but, but like, know keep them in their proper place um so that you can you can think um Mm -hmm. uh so you know and i I, you reminded me earlier of that second project veritas video i think he was an administrator (laughs) in connecticut yeah where um he's revealing how he gets the kids to believe um, certain political positions that align with the democratic party so you know he'll say about the Dobbs ruling, you know, he says, um, well, we don't tell them explicitly what to think. What we do is, and I this was so awesome because he said it I and mean, he, he gave away the game. We, you know, we ask questions. For example, we might say, well, you know, do the, does the majority does the majority in this country agree that Roe versus Wade should be overturned? Like well, let's look it up. Let's Google it, and then you look it up, and like, no, eighty percent of the country or seventy percent thinks that it should should stay. Right. Well, you know, do you think it's good to go against what most people think? You know, do you think that that and anybody, and be like, do you think that's the right thing to do? If it, you know, and then the kids are like, no, you know, of course, I think that's a good thing. We should do what people. We should democratic because it's democratic. All right. Uh, and then they, and then let's so go read
0: the, the lottery for comparison.
1: So right. So so exactly. So. <laughs> So, you know, all of these things are divorced from principle and and your feelings kind of have no memory. It's difficult because you they have no memory of 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 each other. Let me put it that way. Like they kind of when you're in your feelings, you only feel that thing. And that thing is like a it's got like an elevator straight to your higher circuits. And so like, oh, yeah, democracy is good. And, you know, think about all the people and their needs and everything. Um, But then, you know, you could make, like you said, you could talk about the lottery or you could simply say, like, okay well, what about interracial marriage? You know, when that decision was made by the Supreme Court, 80 percent of the people in the country were against interracial marriage. Like, you know, and a responsible teacher would present both and say, okay how do we determine when majority is good and when it's not always good? Right. How do we judge that? And then you can have a real debate. um, Well, yeah, because I mean
0: why should you know these kids were like yeah the majority of people democracy it's so great and it's like unless you're in the minority right and yeah. you know and then of course you have to start it was like if something is a right if you think something is a right why would you even want to put it to the mob in the first place like why would you want that as one of your options it's either a right or it's not a right when it's a right an inalienable right that shouldn't be up for discussion by the mob at all. That's the whole point. That's why it's an inalienable right. So you can you don't get, you know, 99% of people don't want you to have that right. Too bad. It's still mine, <laughs> you know?
1: Yeah, and, yeah.
0: And that's that's something they absolutely are not teaching. And I see it all the time in the students I tutor. I tutor a couple of kids who go to one of the most woke private schools in Atlanta. It, they've actually worked woke into the name, the people who make fun of it. And um, I know
1: it's, I know what you're talking about. You know, it's what I'm talking yeah. about.
0: Woke, I know people okay. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so my student tells me that they, the students have been put into affinity groups. It's not like here it's optional. You can join this. So that's bad enough, but they've been placed in affinity groups. And so I, I, I couldn't help myself. I'm going to get fired from this gig, but I couldn't help myself. But I said to this 11 year old child, I said, um, do you know what the word affinity means? And he said, No. And I thought to myself, like, why would you, yeah, you have you kids be in something called an affinity group and you didn't even tell them what affinity means? So then we looked it up together and it says, you know, kindred, spirited, you know, shared, whatever. I said, do you feel like you have some kindred, you know, similar things with the other kids in your school because they're Asian? He's like, no. And I said, well, your school thinks you do. <laughs> I was
1: like, your Good teachers you. yeah. say
0: do. And so i said do you think you know so is your best friend in your affinity group and he said no and i said do you think that's a problem maybe you know so like we started (laughs) you know talking through like what does affinity mean and do you think affinity groups make sense and what do you think is the point of them i said let me ask you a question is there an affinity group for white people and he said he said, no, no, there is when he goes, well, there's the, there's the gay straight, whatever there's the LGBT group. And there's a lot of white people in there. And he said, oh, there's the anti-racist club. They're all white. <laughs> it like They're all white. And I said, oh yeah, well, they would be, wouldn't they? So then, you know, we got with the conversation kind of wound around and what got it started was the poor kid had an assignment called like the, the problem with the single, the single, single story.
1: Oh yeah. Telling that's the a, single, good... you know, you yeah, know oh, yeah. that
0: one, right? And so I said, did they define story for you? No. Did they define group? Because it's a single story about group. Did they define what a group is? And what are the parameters that make something a group that you would be telling a single story about? Are we talking about small single story, big single story? And then I said, you know, for example, there's that single story about, you know, white people. <laughs> like <again. laughs> So I kind of like kept throwing yeah, it out. At that's
1: him. great. Yeah. Socratic and he, he kept
0: laughing. And I said, I said, no, for real. I said, for real, like, have you heard lots of different nuance about people in the South in the, you know, the 17th, 18th century. And he's, or sorry, 18th and 19th century. And he was like, no, it just, you know, they slaves, bad Southern. know, I was like, it might that be like a single story I said, I'm not defending Slavery. I'm simply saying that understanding the reasons that individuals behaved in the ways that they did is a little bit more complicated than they're evil, you know, they're bad, they're white, you know, like, there you go, there's your answer. And I said, you know, and you also have, that's a big single story, a big one where you can miss a lot of parts of it. They're also small ones. And we talked about, you know, you go to a mechanic and the mechanic says they're going to fix your car and you pay him a bunch of money and the car is not fixed. Now, do you go tell your, your friend, you know, the, that mechan- that white mechanic or that black mechanic or that Hispanic mechanic, whatever it is, like, it, you know, they're all bad because one of them screwed me over. Or do you say all mechanics are bad because they screwed me over? Or do you say, don't go to that particular mechanic because he screwed me over? And I said, you see how we can, I don't know what they mean. Single story, big, small, personal, not personal. And he's like, yeah, I never thought of that. I'm like, exactly. Exactly. I said, because they they wanted you to think about it in very specific terms, about very specific groups, and they don't want you asking the same question about other things. And um, so I took the opportunity for his assignment to, you know, and then I got a little bit sneaky. He said, but I want to get an A. I really want to get an A. I said, all right, well, we can, we can help you get an A. That's easy. I said, write this story from your personal perspective. They can't not give mm-hmm. you an A because it's
1: your truth yeah there you go yeah (laughs) i said use
0: it against them use their own concept against them you tell your truth about being an asian boy and it's something that's gone on people jumping to conclusions about you and telling single stories about you because you're asian you know like you're brilliant at math or you know whatever whatever and then he had fun with the assignment. but Before that, he was like, I don't know how to answer this question. And I guess I'm just supposed to say this. And and that's we're missing what's happening to the kids. The kids right away get, if I want to get an A, I have to feel correctly, first of all. Then I have to find the facts that fit the feelings to document in the paper that show that I have, look, teach, I have the correct feelings about all this. I don't dare ask questions because I asked him, I said, why didn't you raise your hand and ask what they meant? To define these terms mm-hmm. and he looks at me like i had three heads why would i do that uh, why would i yeah like, that, that's, wouldn't that's, even that's suicide
1: yeah i yeah. mean it's the all the incentives are aligned against asking exactly. direct questions exactly which but are this are so is what obvious. they do
0: this is how they the, do it
1: the danger of a single story i forget the um uh, the woman who gives a speech but basically they what they do is this they'll so by single story they they give you an impression of what it is that they that's dangerous but that allows them to hide the ball and and construct for you by by example what it, what a, what the different stories look like. Even though, um, they're very similar in that they're all groups, like you said, they're all group perspectives, where the perspective is the perspective that the group is supposed to have. Um, if you had Really, it's the danger of a single story and the danger of certain constructed multiple stories um, where, in fact, you know, the individual story, every individual has their own story. And let's talk about that.
0: Exactly. And that's what I just I saw the assignment and I, I am not good with the poker face, Paul, you know, this so even when i'm just tutoring a student individual student over zoom i can't like i just hope his mom is not like mad at me or something that doesn't come out anytime like what but (laughs) but uh i mean he gets a kick out of it he says it's helpful so hopefully things keep going along but i i can't help myself i look at the assignments and i just shake my i'm like this
1: i bet he loves you i bet and he and he
0: laughs and he laughs and i was like so you know tell me did they do that and i said do they talk a lot about white supremacy in your class? He's like, all the time. <laughs> you know I mean, and then I said, OK, well, I'm just sort of curious. Do you think it's maybe like a little tiny bit white supremacist to tell the Asian kids they all have to get together in a group for support? Why do you need support? Like, why do you need this like group of Asian kids <laughs> to be able to function in school? Like, are you, you know, it to me, it's like, oh, poor you.
1: One of my saddest memories for the last year I was teaching at Grace is of my advisory group and children in my advisory group being introduced to this for the first time and watching them in silence, figuring out what it was they were supposed to say and looking, trying to recall the grievance that they could they could bring up and and like show and tell of grievances that would give them, you know, validation and, you know, calling, well, you know, one time, yeah. One time a kid said I was good at math and like, I'm not always good at math and, you know, another, you know, another, (laughs) another time I wanted someone to touch my hair and like, you know, and so like they start to, and they and they start to, you know, I'm not saying these things didn't happen, but what, what, what matters necessarily about this is that it's, it's seen as like a doorway through which, you need to offer this sort of trinket right. um, from your person to, to gain entrance to your yeah. consciousness as a racialized or being. Um, well, you have and, to be
0: aggrieved.
1: Yeah, aggrieved, and then you can you know. Then on the on the flip side of that, watching all these teacher trainings, there are teacher t- teachers facilitators that are saying it is a tragedy that children graduated from our school without a racialized identity, without being proud of their as their blackness like it, it can't be that they didn't care right because if they didn't care enough well that probably means that they're just hiding shame around it so that's why they have to leave celebrating it um and so they're they're constructing this game which the kids are passing through and by the time they leave they know or at least they know how to lie about it but you know they know how to play this game Sad. It reminds
0: me of feminists in college, you know, just getting all up in my face about various things to do with being a woman. And, you know, I I was one of very few members of the young Republicans in college because they were burning Reagan on, you know, an effigy on the lawn and all this. And there mm-hmm. were like 10 of us who were off to the side and most of them were male. I think we had like one other woman in the group and I would be accosted by these, you know, young feminists. And then you know, how can you as a woman, you know, as a woman, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And they could have, you know, you're, you're just, you've internalized misogyny, even then in the eighties of like, you've internalized this, you just hate yourself. And I'm like, or maybe I don't care. You know, like you said, I think actually what I said was maybe I care more about keeping the money that I've earned and making sure that people stay out of my business and that I can defend myself with my own firearm. And, you know, like I had all these reasons, yeah, like right. maybe I care more about that. Than other things. And maybe I don't feel so oppressed by them as I do by you telling me that if I want to be a mom and I want to have kids and I want to be a wife and I want to do these things that I'm a bad person because I want those things in my life. And you're telling me I shouldn't want those things. So you know what? You're the ones that are actually oppressing me or you're the ones who are actually making me feel small and making me feel like, a, like I'm bad. And they're telling me like, we accept you exactly the way you are and we want you to have the same stuff we have you want money? We want money. Hey, yeah, we have something in common. I mean, they can't conceive. There's this, this sort of, uh, they project their own ideas and wants under the people. They are extraordinarily narcissistic. And I feel like this whole teaching people what to feel is more about making the other people who live in feelings feel safe and comfortable that no one around them will challenge them. If we if we can make the world in our image, then nobody's ever going to make us live in reality. Like your dad did.
1: Where your dad yeah. said
0: I don't care.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, I, mean, I it,
0: don't care.
1: Yeah, and and just sitting me just having to sit with that cuz like I wanted intimacy with them. I wanted, you know, I wanted to have this relationship uh, about something that I thought was more deep than simply a father and son relationship that we would have, we, you know, that he could understand where it was coming from and, you know, that he would, he would understand the weight of these issues and, you know, um, but yeah, like something that kind of stops you in your tracks and, and you, you made me laugh. Cause you, cause I'm thinking like, if you were a feminist and there was this patriarchy, why would you trust it with your money and control over your, like decisions and work exactly. and why wouldn't you want as much independence from a patriarchal government as possible?
0: Exactly. Uh, I never understood, like none of it made any sense to me. Why don't I get all the choices? Why can't I do all the things? And and it's, you know, I just want these kids to be able to do their own thinking. If they arrive at different conclusions than I do, that's fine. I just want, I don't ever want to have a kid say to me, like, I was put in an affinity group and I don't even know what affinity means like to, that was a watershed moment for me in the my history, recent yeah. life
1: <laughs> and the history of affinity groups is, is in this country are fascinating like where they came from they actually came from like political cadres in in South America where they were doing you know really radical stuff and that got transplanted uh, into this country so it's yeah it's it's a mess but yeah
0: so to finish up um what what do you recommend to like parents who might be listening you know as a former teacher um what do you recommend to them to do i mean other than just you know get the kids out uh
1: yeah to kind of
0: to kind of counterbalance this ask
1: open-ended questions like i spent a lot of time just thinking of like the precise open-ended question you know not an either or question but like how much to what extent when and what and under what conditions and what cases so, if they come at you with something like, this is a thing that is always true, and mm-hmm. this is what they told us, and whatever, okay, like, so it'd be like, and what can, under what conditions is diversity not good? What is diversity always good? Is it not, when is it not good? Or when is this thing that, which is presented as this unmitigated greatness, you know, this principle, when, and can you, can you think of one? Just, you know, ask a creative question, like, and maybe like you have to ask yourself that question, like, well, you know, well, maybe if people in the group don't always get along, well, then maybe it's hard to function. Or maybe, right. you know, if people are coming from different places, it's it's not always a strength or something. Something, you know, well, that might um, – And you and you're not going to get an answer. Like don't ask for an answer right away and don't push your luck and don't try to tell them. Just leave them with that question and just say, well, think about it. I'll think about it too. You know, I'm your parent. I think about these things. Let's think right. about it together. And, and that way you're like, you're in it with them. And, you know, the, and then they're actually, you're not actually this, this person telling them what to think on the other side, you know?
0: Right. I also like to challenge kids about word meanings. I'm a big fan of de- mm, defining terms. And so when kids are throwing words at me, like, well, you need to know the, blah, blah, and I'm just like, what does that, what does that word mean to you? Mm-hmm. Like, can you give me your definition of that word? that you're using that you assume I know what it means, but we might have a different definition. And so Mm -hmm. like diversity is a very charged one. So is inclusion, so is belonging, Mm -hmm. like all of these words that they throw around, like we all have the exact same definition. We know exactly what we're talking about. And 90% of the time, the kids don't even know how to define it. They can't define it. It's like I said, it's like a, a little incantation that they're, they're doing. They have a very,
1: a very deep felt experience of what the word means. You Mm -hmm. know, they know that it's good and they know Mm -hmm. that it's, that it's righteous. Um, yeah. but they haven't been. They really haven't explored it, and that's a tremendous opportunity to explore it.
0: Right, like you know, yeah. diversity of ability, like in those brain surgeons, do would that be good? I don't know. Do you want a diversity of abilities on the battlefield and command when you're fighting a yeah. war? <laughs>
1: like, yeah, exactly. Like uh, you know, and then also a lot you do, of times maybe you don't. <laughs> a, a lot of times is DEI and these ideas are presented outside of time. Like they're just presented as things that were never developed. They have a very recent past and, you know, some of them, some of them go back 200 years, but, but in, in their recent, like when did this, when was this invented? When did we invent this as a thing that was important that you take for granted, you know, and, Um,
0: and does consistency matter? So do the words change meaning on, depending on who's uttering them and what they're using them for. So, you know, take the Canadian shop teacher, (laughs) For example, um, you know, the school has reiterated now multiple times in response to parental uh, complaints. For those of you who aren't familiar with what we're talking about, we're talking about the teacher who was, until last year, a male teacher who taught shop uh, in Canada, who suddenly changed his name and showed up with gigantic, I mean, we're talking almost absurdly large prosthetic breasts with very visible nipples and a very tight shirt long hair the whole thing and is teaching around power tools with this so nobody the kids put it instantly on their snapchat like this is not normal the kids reported to their parents parents don't think it's normal nobody thinks it's normal the school says and it happened after the school made this very public we're committed to diversity equity inclusion and recognizing gender expression
1: Mm.
0: in comes this guy so they're saying, no, We he, he has a right to it, whatever, whatever. But what if a woman did the same thing? A biological woman did the same thing. So is it diversity when she does it? If her gender expression is, I'm going to dress like a oh, streetwalker. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna go, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. No,
0: I'm going to dress like a street. I'm going to wear like five or six inch heels and a mini skirt that barely covers my butt and a shirt that's like open down to here no bra at all, full makeup, you know, long nails. This is my gender expression. I'm going all in on the the feminine, you know, stereotype, whatever. And I'm coming in to teach shop class. Would they say that's okay? That's her gender expression? Or would they say this is unprofessional and you've got a classroom full of youngsters and like, what are you doing here? And that would be an interesting, it would be like the Martha's vineyard of gender expression. (laughs) Let's see what happens. Um, I actually think they probably would allow it. And then that should be your first clue that something's amiss because Mm -hmm. why would you like, why would you allow it? You know, this whole, we accept everything means you reject nothing. That means there's no limit. There's no limit at all. Then the next day they'll come in and say, my gender expression is naked. My gender expression is I feel my most feminine with no clothes on whatsoever. Clothing is oppressive. I'm coming to school nude. And what is their what's the rational argument against that at that point?
1: No, I I mean, I mean, I I imagine like if I objected, they would say I was slut shaming or it would be my fault because I would be sexualizing a naked body. Right. So like, how dare I? How dare I sexualize a naked body?
0: Well, exactly. Um, so, what we're what we're running into now with a lot of these things that they're teaching, they're trying. I don't think they're succeeding all the way, but they're trying to teach our kids not only to feel certain things, but to have no feelings in, in terms of self protective boundary mm-hmm. feelings. Those gut instincts that go, "Uh oh," like this person is kind of touched. Um, to have none of those. Like you have so many feelings for others that you have none for yourself.
1: Yeah, it's fragility. You know, it's basically if you don't accept this, well, it's your fragility. And I was just I was just thinking about what if it was uh, it was a woman um, who, you know, started thinking they were a man and wore like a kind of a cucumber in her pants. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, as opposed to a man doing that. Right. Sure. So like the same problem you would because the gender expression is I'm trying to make sense of what doesn't make sense because the gender expression is tied to the person's identity as an as an oppressed figure. Yeah. Therefore, it's legitimate. I think I that's like actually the, 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 that's the subtext true. so that if you if you are cis and you do it, well, then it's it's not good because you're just sexualizing yourself and that's uncomfortable. But if you're trans and you, you do it, well, then, you know, it's it's protected. It's kind of like your protected speech right. around your Except thing. Except
0: what we're also teaching the kids is that if you want to go out in public and push the boundaries of decency and push other people's boundaries to make them uncomfortable, do things that would not be okay if you did them as yourself, simply put on a costume and go do it and it's fine. So that's another mm-hmm. lesson that we're teaching in this whole like, here's how to feel. Mm-hmm. It's like, mm-hmm. don't have any feelings about the behavior of others that that's that is negative that are negative. You know, you're not allowed to do mm-hmm. that. And we're so it's kind of weird. We're like encouraging narcissism and self sacrifice at the same time. It's very strange. Um, mm-hmm. and I think yeah, you're just gonna end up with two groups of people, you're gonna end up with malignant narcissists and self-sacrificing, you know, sheep. Mm-hmm. And I think that might even be part of the goal, like, but that's a whole other show. Um, so I think folks, you know, the, the message here is just make sure that you tune in. If you have school age kids, make sure you tune in to what they think about things and if they're actually thinking or feeling. And if they are, as Paul says, throw some open-ended questions their way and try to get them, back into the actual thinking realm and next time you're on social media and you hear somebody say or see somebody say they're teaching kids what to think not how to think um remember that's not exactly true they are teaching them how to think using a specific thinking style using heuristics that lead them to feel and not to conclude anything based on reality so did i get it right I think. I think so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, anything else you want to say before we check out here today? I just want
1: to say I I'm holding out hope that this shop teacher uh with the massive falsies is actually trolling. I, I uh if if it is a troll, I am I, I will be I'm in like, awe. Exactly. Like it is if it's it a troll, be... it's the best troll so ever. But I kind I of know. just I kind of just wishful thinking. I'm just gonna put it out there it Maybe really would taking, be, but I mean, you know, it.
0: that's a lot to take on. That's a lot yeah, to take Yeah, but on. I mean,
1: there, there are protections for the person in the workplace. Like It could be like a Mr. Garrison thing on South Park. You know, there's just, just please, you know, please, God.
0: If if he's not, I think someone ought to, just saying. You
1: know, I think someone, yeah, someone out there.
0: <laughs> All right. Anybody hiring? I know, really. All right. Thanks, you guys. Right. Thanks, everyone, for coming, and we'll see you next time. Take it easy.